0: Welcome in to the Get Out of Porn Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Wilkie. I apologize for not having an episode last week. I was both on vacation and sick, actually, at the same time, which was a bummer. But uh, it was nice to get away for a little while. I had fully intended to record the podcast, but when I got sick and kind of the stomach flu, I guess, that went out the window. And so uh, we we waited a week to get to part two of definitions. Where we had left off is we had, in, in our part one of definitions, we had discussed acting out. Addiction, agency, behavioral approach, betrayal trauma, compulsivity, dysregulation, risk regulation, and foundation and I wanted to get into part two with another um and and really it's gonna be a list of probably six things. we're gonna end on euphoric recall. Uh, I realize euphoric starts with an e and not a u, but for because it sounds like it starts with a u we're gonna we're gonna throw it in because I thought about that, and I use that sometimes, and you might hear that term and so I wanted to just make you aware of what euphoric recall is and I threw it on this list. If you do have questions or or have concerns or wonder, you know, I've I've heard this term, whatever it is, as I told you on the last podcast, please reach out to me, joewilkiecounseling at gmail.com. But we want to start with future tripping. Future tripping. We left off of foundation, but what is future tripping? And this is just worrying about things that haven't really happened yet. As a matter of fact, if you Google the term future tripping, what you'll see is it's anticipatory anxiety. You're worrying about something that hasn't happened. And why does this have to do with addiction? A lot of times it's because we can stress ourselves out. We can we can think about the future. We can think about especially as you consider sobriety, man, that's how many days do I have to do this? Like it's been five days. I gotta do the rest of my life this way. I have to worry about, you know, what happens when I go on vacation next month and I'm going to be down at the beach. You know, am I going to act out then? You're future tripping. You're worrying about things that haven't happened yet. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then. And today have a, has enough trouble of its own, as Jesus says. And we have to stay present in the moment. If we live in the past, well, there's, whole, there's, there's a ton of issues that come with living in the past, right? We, But that's a lot of what trauma response is, is we are acting out and living out the trauma that we've been through in the past but then we can also future trip and we can be thinking too much about the future and too much you know experience a lot of anxiety about things that haven't happened yet what about this what about that i'm going to have to stay sober my entire life that's too much i just don't think i can do it what about this situation that situation how am i going to how am i going to handle x y or z that's really detrimental because it causes us to not live in the moment addiction is all about living presently staying present with yourself staying present with your emotions handling the present situations to the best of our ability and not worrying too much about the future. Pretty easy one, um, but again, you might hear me use future tripping, and that's what I'm talking about. The next one takes a little more explanation, and that is inner child. Inner child is something that a lot of therapists talk about, and some people think it's hokey, especially in the Christian world. Oh, you do the inner child work. See, we just do strict CBT in in Christianity. We want to know the cognitive and the behavioral, and that's about it. That's not the way I view it. That's that's not the way I view it. Uh, I think inner child is one of the most important things that I do in my therapy practice because what I often say is the addict is, or the inner child is the addict. The addict is a child, especially if your addiction started at, you know, and I've worked with guys and talked with guys where their addiction maybe started in their 20s and it was usually due to something traumatic. But a lot of times the addiction starts when you're a kid. And so we have to go back and we have to wrestle a little bit with, What was going on at 13? What was going on at 10? And the addict started forming at 10 years old. Why? Typically due to trauma, due to attachment issues, things like that. Um, But it's really the inner child that's the addict. And so when we go back, we, we can hate our addict so much and be like, man, I just want him gone. I think he's the worst. But if we come face to face, and we do this with internal family systems work, but if we come face to face with our addict self, I think it helps to be able to look him in the eyes and realize, man, he's a kid. He's a kid, he's so young, he was hurting, he needed something, he needed an escape from his problems, he needed something that was gonna help him feel loved, whatever it is, that's the inner child. So the inner child work is, again, one of the most important parts of therapy, in my opinion, because it's one thing to make behavioral changes in the present, but those don't always last because they're merely behavioral issues. If we're not going back and dealing with the trauma, and, and here's the other part of it, and I think I've spoken with this on reparenting and with other things, um, some trauma techniques that we use, but here's the other thing is we can behaviorally make changes, we can forgive people in our past, whatever it is, but that inner child is the one that experienced the hurt. And if you're not connected to your younger self and to your inner child, then you're going to have a tough time breaking free from the addiction because a lot of it is going back and helping him through the emotions he was going through. You say, well, I'm not I'm not mad at my dad anymore for abusing me, physically abusing me. You know, I learned to forgive. I just, I let it go a long time ago. Okay. That's great for you. But what happens when your wife says something that maybe your dad used to say, and it triggers you quite a bit. Well, you know, Joe in the present, I thought you forgave your dad. I thought everything was good. Look, there's an inner child. There's, there's Joe, the kid who is still very fearful of his dad, who really hasn't worked through the trauma of being beat by whatever it is. And my dad didn't do that. But as I'm explaining like you have to recognize there's a younger part of yourself that's still sometimes is presently feeling it time doesn't work kind of on the line of well that was all back then and we've let that go your inner child's still feeling it today we have to go back and work on that so when we talk about this don't don't view it as hokey as oh well that's just weird yeah you get into that new age stuff whatever it is no we're dealing with a part of ourselves that still is very much active and alive and we have to not hate the addict because we have to realize the addict is just the kid that was trying to protect himself, trying to get what he didn't have. If your dad did abuse you and you ran to porn, a lot of times that's the escape, right? And you want something that's going to make you feel loved and going to pick you up and that's going to kind of be a friend. In these moments of fear, and these moments of terror, and these moments of hurt and anger and bitterness and frustration and, and all of those emotions that come with it, porn can be the numbing thing. We talked about foundation last time. When we're out of our foundation, sometimes porn can be what puts us back in the foundation temporarily, especially as a kid. Well, now you're dealing with the inner child. He's the one that learned to do it. Not, not Joe, the 30-year-old, but Joe, the kid. We have to be thinking about that. Um, next is Intimacy. Intimacy on our list of of terms. And intimacy, according to Dr. Michael Barta, I talked about the book last week, TINSA, T-I-N-S-A, he uses intimacy as vulnerability plus authenticity. I used to say it's to know and to be known. Um, I heard a guy, I was talking with a guy on a plane one time, and he said intimacy is into me you see. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I'll remember that. I remember it to this day. Into me you see, and that was years ago. But I like Dr. Barta's definition most Intimacy is vulnerability plus authenticity. What do we mean by that? When we say this is an intimacy disorder, it's really difficult to let people get close. We're full of shame, we're full of all the things that just destroy us being fully known by people, us being able to be vulnerable. I can't be vulnerable with people because they'll reject me. I can't be authentic with people because they'll reject me, they won't love me. And so we lack intimacy, we lack the ability to get close to people and to fully feel loved because they only love the projection of me. They only love Joe, the nice, the nice guy who actually bottles up all his feelings and isn't vulnerable with him. They only love the Joe that they see because I put forth this face that is Mr. Nice Guy or that is ultra confident or whatever it is, but it's not authentic. It's not me. What we seek to do is not just get you out of porn addiction. If you somehow behaviorally beat your porn addiction, your sex addiction, but you're not vulnerable, you still can't be authentic with people. You're going to fall right back into it. And if it's not sex addiction, it will be something else. The only way to break free is by living an open life that is that, that can be seen by others, that can be loved by others. And you say, well, people will reject me. Okay, what if they do? What if they do? Are you worthy of rejection? Are you worthy of hatred, of not being loved because you struggle with sin? That's not the way God sees it. God loved you. Christ died for you while you were in your sin, while you were enemies of him. Romans 5 is going to tell us. So if he can love us, maybe other people can't. Maybe your wife does leave. Maybe other people, when you, when you are vulnerable and you are authentic with them, maybe they can't accept that part of you. Somebody will. And if anything, you have to realize God accepts you at, at your worst. He loves you at your worst, I should say. And you have to learn to love yourself at your worst. That means we don't want to stay in that. We want to grow from that. But if we hate ourselves until we get sober, or we hate ourselves until we're perfect, we will always lack intimacy because we're not ever going to be able to show other people our vulnerable and our authentic parts. This is an intimacy disorder. You have to learn to grow closer to people, which is why, for guys, even somebody like me, the the mere presence of accountability of an accountability group is what got me out of this. I didn't do a whole lot of trauma work. Now I have later, but I didn't do a lot of trauma work um, in getting out of the addiction. It was enough to just have guys look me in the eye and say, we're still here for you. We know you relapsed this last week. We're still here for you, we still love you. That's unbelievable. That's, That's like, I've never experienced that before. I always thought I would be rejected. I thought people would hate me for this. They didn't. So when I learned to become vulnerable with people and when I learned to be authentic and not just goody two-shoes Joe, but hey, this is who I am, good, bad, or otherwise, and when they accepted me and they continue to come back week after week and help me and I help them, man, that was incredible. So people try to beat this on their own because they don't want to have to show people that part. That's your problem. You'll never get out of the addiction as long as you are holding on to your secrecy, holding on to your privacy, and not allowing people to see you at your most vulnerable and authentic. Intimacy has to be one. It has to be um, pushed for. It has to be something that you're striving for every single day in your life, whether it's the addiction or not. When you're in recovery, which is actually the next one I'm going to cover, again, as we're talking future tripping and child intimacy recovery, when you go into that, recovery can't just be, well, I'm sober. Yeah, that's true, but it has to be you living a completely different life. When somebody's in recovery from alcohol, they have to change friends, they have to change habits, they have to change places, sometimes they have to change where they live, where they work, all of those things because there's triggers involved, there's a lot of things involved, but recovery is you living a life that is different than what you live. It's not just, well, I was acting out, as we talked about, right, acting out, I was relapsing consistently, I was in my addiction, and now I'm not. Okay, sure, But if nothing really has changed, if you're not living an intimate life with others and allowing people to see you, if you're not changing your habits, changing your thought patterns, changing your behaviors, changing even your emotions and really processing through your emotions and meditating and praying about it and sitting and resting in some of those emotions and developing a really good relationship with your inner child, if those things aren't changing, your recovery won't last very long. It will be a behavioral thing that may last for a time as long as you're white-knuckling it, but... And which I've had a full episode on if you want to know what that is. You go back and listen to white knuckling. But you might be white knuckling it, but you're not actually living the recovery life. This has to be a complete change of who you are basically. And that may sound daunting. Man, people, people don't change. It's really difficult to change. You can change when you are fully known and you have people that are helping you with that change. Changing on your own and your secrecy is really difficult to do. Most people don't accomplish it. Some people have the self-control to do it. Good for them. Most people can't. So recovery is about living an open and honest life, a different life than what you led before, where you are connecting with other people. And you can tell when you're not in recovery, not because of the fact that you're acting out as much as, I'm pulling away from people. I'm not doing my morning routines. I'm not getting up and exercising. I'm not getting up and and making my bed. My desk is super cluttered. My room is looking horrible. Like those are indicators that maybe you're not in recovery. Maybe you are, you know, life is happening to you. You're not happening to it, so to speak. Those can be very strong indicators that you may be looking to act out soon if you don't have those things in control. And so recovery is just a lifestyle that we have to live. Next is trauma. I throw around the word trauma. What is trauma? And... If you look it up, APA actually has their own page for trauma. And what it says is trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches or nausea. So yeah, that's APA.org, American Psychological Association, pretty big deal. But I would kinda go a step further. An emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. There's the big T and the little T trauma. Little T is more of a um, sustained, kinda like you grew up in a very volatile home. That's a little T trauma. Uh, Big T trauma would be, yeah, car accident. Something big happened, a spike on the radar, so to speak. Or or on, you know, as you're you're looking at, um, I can't even think of what it is, a cardiogram, whatever, where there's a giant spike right? That is sometimes how people look at trauma. So I'll do a timeline of people's life and well, no, I didn't really have any trauma. Nothing really. Wow. Okay. well, my dad didn't beat me. I wasn't sexually abused. You know, there's no abuse. No, Nobody died. No major car accidents. I didn't go to war. Um, so I don't really have any traumas. And then you start talking about it and it's like, yeah, well, my mom and dad were fighting every single day. And, and, you know, sometimes I saw my dad hit my mom and, I saw my mom, you know, go to the bottle, and and she was drinking a lot. And um, you know, one time she got drunk, and did, and it's like, but oh, but it's not trauma because I wasn't abused. Yeah, it is. It really is because it's a negative emotional event that had a negative mo- emotional impact on you. That's how I choose to define trauma: it's a an event that has a negative emotional impact on you, and maybe events in the plural. It can be you growing up in a very volatile home where nobody was abused per se. Maybe there wasn't domestic violence, but it was. It was just an emotionally um, unavailable or emotionally volatile home. That can be traumatic to a kid because what do you learn? I can't be open with my emotions. I can't say anything because if I do, I'm gonna yell at. If I do, they're just gonna shut off and they're not gonna to talk to me. They're gonna they're going to cut me out for an entire week where I don't get to talk to people. That can be a traumatic thing. Moving, you know we, you you move, like I talked with one guy. On his timeline, it was three years old, four years old, five years old, nineteen years old. But he started porn at twelve. And I said, "Well, what's going on with the you know five to nineteen? Nothing in there? Well, no, nothing traumatic." So okay, what's going on around twelve? Well, we moved. Oh, okay. Well, that sometimes can be traumatic. I think they. I think he said, "Yeah, we moved a bunch. We moved. I think it was nine times in three years. I mean, it's just something ridiculous where that's not trauma, traumatic. That wasn't uh, you know him being beaten." But you move nine times in three years, what do you think is happening? I make friends, I, I lose friends, I make friends, I lose friends, I make friends, I lose friends. You stop making friends. You isolate. You run to porn. It makes a lot more sense, right? Well, it wasn't traumatic. Yes, it is. That is traumatic to a kid. It's, it's rapid change. It has a negative emotional impact. So that's how I choose to define trauma. Something that has a negative emotional impact on you. Last is euphoric recall. As I said, I know it starts with an E, uh, but euphoric recall. And that is exactly as it sounds, which is you're recalling past sexual experiences, sexual things that arouse you. And so when we say, well, he might be engaging in euphoric recall. You're not currently looking at porn. Uh, you're not engaging in prostitution, whatever it is. But you are thinking about a past sexual experience you had. You're thinking about a past porn video you had. You're getting aroused. Maybe you're masturbating to that. So euphoric recall is can be kind of like a daydreaming type thing where you're just lost in the moment of something that happened in the past that brought euphoria, that brought this euphoric response, you know, a very happy response. A lot of people who have had sex multiple times, that's more likely. It does happen with those who view porn, for sure. But a lot of times it's a past sexual experience someone had, and they look back on it fondly, and there's a lot of euphoric recall, and sometimes they can masturbate to that. They can, um, you know, self-pleasure to things that aren't even presently taking place, they're not even looking at anything, and this is something we have to guard against. I've worked with people where they've stopped, they've even stopped masturbating, and they've stopped porn, and they've stopped doing the strip clubs and everything else, but they really struggle with fantasy, and they really struggle with euphoric recall because of all the experience that they had had, and they continue to pop up. So sometimes we have to be aware of that, that it's not just what we're looking at, it's where our mind is going, and we have to understand why our mind is going to these specific places. Why are we continually going back? Sometimes there's an unresolved aspect to these memories that we have to we have to call out, we have to understand. And so, you know, you do the typical working through whatever that is and what we're trying to get out of those memories, why those continue to pop up. But they can work just like our desire to run to porn. There's triggers for it. I get triggered because somebody said the name... Some girl's name that triggers back to a time where you slept with a girl that, you know, with that name. Or if it does regard porn, maybe something triggers that specific video in your mind and you end up daydreaming about it. Still wrong, still leads to the heart of lust. Even if you're not acting on it, quote unquote, it can still be uh, dangerous and something that we need to, to work through. So that's the list that I had we've covered acting out addiction agency behavioral approach betrayal trauma compulsivity dysregulation versus regulation foundation future tripping inner child intimacy recovery trauma and euphoric recall and if you have any others please again let me know if you're wondering what that is that's going to wrap up this one in the next episode we're going to talk about the head and the heart disconnect and what that looks like and why that can be so detrimental specifically in the realm of sexual addiction where we understand something logically, we don't understand it in the heart. We've talked about some of this before. I'm going to dedicate an entire episode to that. That will be coming out next week. Thank you for listening. I appreciate uh, the listenership. And uh, if you are listening and, and can give it a like or subscribe, please do so. That would be fantastic. But I will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening.